Welcome to Adulting, a podcast where we want to adult every day. Download episodes at adulting.tv. Welcome to Adulting Live today. I'm Miranda Marquette, and I am joined by Harlan Landis. How are you today, Harlan? I'm doing great. How are you, Miranda? I am doing well, and I'm super excited. We have a guest today. Her name is Lillian Carebake, and she is from ohmydollar.com. And I'm very excited to talk to her about dream jobs and getting out there and finding what makes you happy in life. So welcome to the show, Lillian. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Let's start out real quick. What is it that you do over at Oh My Dollar? And then also, you know, do you get to live the dream? Do you get to live your dream job? I'll answer the second question later because I feel like that ends up being a harder question to answer. But uh, at Oh My Dollar, I teach personal finance with a dash of glitter. So one of the big things I do is I dress up like David Bowie a lot to explain 401ks and retirement allocations and budgeting and things like that. And we actually just wrapped up a successful Kickstarter where we are producing a comic book, which is Cats Explaining Personal Finance. See, that sounds amazing. Glitter is great. David Bowie is even better than glitter. Although those two things go together very well. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that cats go very well with glitter, though. <laughs> oh, they <begs> to differ. <laughs> That's what I thought. So that's really cool that you that you're able to kind of make personal finance fun because I know that sometimes I mean even in my own life and I live and breathe personal finance when I'm not out there causing trouble in politics I know that like sometimes it gets a little boring even for me so adding a little glitter and some David Bowie sounds like fun I find a little bit of spandex helps the 401k allocations go down <laughs> so what what era of David Bowie speaks most to the people that you want to provide this 401k information to? I mean, is it the, the labyrinth Bowie or is it? I actually vary the Bowie all the time. And a lot of it speaks to the audience. The uh, I have like 10 or 11 Bowie costumes, which is a side effect of leading this very large bike ride in Portland called Bowie versus Prince for 10 years. And being a wayward millennial, I can't repeat costumes year to year leading 1500 people around on bikes as Bowie mm. and Prince. So every year I had to make a new costume um, and it got like more and more elaborate each year. So when I first started teaching personal finance, I was like, what? I should use all those costumes clearly. <laughs> but yeah, I tailor it to the audience. I was recently talking to a bunch of college administrators that were mainly like from the South and the Midwest. And I was going and I was like, you know, I think I'm going to go for the suit Bowie. I'm going to go for like the late 70s Bowie as opposed to like the half naked spandex Bowie. Yeah. So actually, I was going to ask, would it be like considered a betrayal if you made me a prince costume for that <laughs> Bowie versus Prince bike ride? <laughs> like I can't sew worth anything. But you know, if you can make a David Bowie costume, you could sure as you could probably make me a prince costume, right? <laughs> I could, but I'm a, I'm a terrible seamstress. My costumes look best from at least 15 feet away. Nice. <laughs> so since you podcast as well, do you have a David Bowie impression that you use to provide the, your financial advice with? No, I yeah. usually find that it's just mainly the costume dazzling that I do, but no, no impressions. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I just always think to uh, the Flight of the Concords, who always there was one uh, one song that they have, and and then one episode of the TV show that they had that where they focus in on David Bowie, and it's hilarious, and they do an amazing David Bowie impression. So I'm a big fan. <laughs> I found that the impressions tend to distract from the actual like investment advice. <laughs> Spandex <laughs> helps, but the impressions just go a little too far. Yeah, yeah. There's a bright line that you have to draw in the sand, right? <laughs> well, personal finance in song is always good, too. It, it, it always helps get the message across, I think. So let's talk about the second question Then I asked about the dream job. <laughs> so, so how do you create a dream job as, well, anybody really? I mean, how do you go out and find that dream job? And then how do you actually get into living that dream job and making it a part of your life? So I kind of have an interesting background. So I initially dropped out of college when I was a teenager, and it was like clear I wasn't going anywhere. So then I was a high school and a college dropout. I'm from the Midwest, and I was, you know, just spinning my wheels in a grocery store in the Midwest, like not doing a lot with my life. So when I was 18, I bought a one-way ticket to Oregon to live in a hippie commune. And I became a vegetarian kitchen manager at a hippie commune in the middle of the woods. I lived in a tree and learned how to run a kitchen. And after, you know, I dabbled around in that and ended up having probably the most typical millennial of smattering of jobs. Uh, I was an exotic dancer. I was a tax preparer. I washed dishes. And then I did two years in AmeriCorps where I was a live-in social worker for homeless young mothers. And then I went into bike advocacy. So that really started my career in nonprofits. I actually recently added up. I'm 30 now. In my 20s, I had 40 jobs. Whoa. Yeah. And my average time at each job was two and a half years. So I always, I think the least number of jobs I had was three at a time. Oh, wow. I just always have a lot of side hustles. Usually I have about five jobs. And some of that is a side effect of like, Oregon didn't have a, I live in Oregon, didn't have a super great economy for most of the 2010s and early 2000s. So it was just hard to find full-time jobs. Um, And I was always just juggling a lot of things. But a lot of it just has to do with if you are someone with really diverse interests, it's okay to not try to get everything from one job. (laughs) And so, yeah, I always always kind of dabbled in, in a bunch of jobs. I'm a Midwesterner at heart. I like working hard. I find work is kind of one of the greatest pleasures And so, you know, I don't care if I'm working eight hours a week, if I'm going to do ridiculous things like dress up in Bowie costumes for some of that time. (laughs) I also worked in politics, which was actually my first time that I had only had one job because I I worked for the party and I wasn't allowed to have any other jobs because of conflict Mm -hmm. of interest. And I very quickly burnt out both from the work, but also from the identity that gets wrapped up in being a director in in the Democratic Party in an election season, you have a very, your persona suddenly becomes only your job. And deriving a lot of my like fun and my identity out of my work. And I think that that is important. But realizing at the beginning and end of the day, that you are only defined by what you contribute to something that you don't have a lot of creative power in it in was didn't work for me. Yeah. So I, I think it's funny you mentioned that because I am actually the county chair for my my political party. And, and I actually pays great, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Pays, (laughs) pays zero. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's fun and I love it um, because it's, I, I look at it more as like my activism and outlet for my activism. But I, of course, I'm the minority party in a place where most of the time I just feel like I'm fighting the power. So I don't think of it in terms of party or party identity, more of like local politics and like fighting the power. <laughs> so I, I think it. Yeah, totally. So yeah. I love, well, doing things as a volunteer, you know, like I love sitting on city committees, although I, I reached the point where I realized I was at peak committee because I was on the subcommittee to a committee I'd been assigned to by a different committee. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, but I, I, I love sitting on committees. I like being stakeholders. You know, I live in a, a, a decent sized city. So most of the committees that I sit on are um, like advisory committees to the city, like the transportation advisory committee or, you know, labor board or something like that. And that was always a really awesome identity to wear. But as compared to having your full-time job be director in the party, um, it's very different because you can have that role. And while you always carry it around, it's sort of like a basket of goods that you have with other things. And I think I know a lot of young people who get really caught up in this idea that once they achieve that title, or once they achieve that full-time job that, you know, director in the party is one example, but like, that full-time job, then they'll be done. That it's like a trophy that they won and they put on a shelf. <laughs> and, and I don't know that many people that end up feeling very satisfied after they kind of win that trophy, simply because you don't get, you don't, we don't, get, our generation doesn't gain anything by that, right? <laughs> like, we're not going to get, we're not going to walk away with a p- pension and the same job 40 years from now as we have now. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you make is that, you know, we look at some of these jobs that we consider a dream job and that if we could just get that, then everything will be fine. And we kind of forget that really, like I was saying, you know, I mean, I may not get paid for my political activism, but it brings me a lot of fulfillment and I can keep doing things with it. I can keep uh, moving forward with it. And because it's more of a political activist volunteer job, I can change it if I want and, and move forward. It's a little bit different than being, I mean, you are basically stuck in what amounts to middle management, right? <laughs> Where like there's, there's somebody like above you telling you what you have to do. And then people below you that you have to kind of like wrangle and finding that place where you feel like you can continue to grow and evolve uh, isn't always about just your job, but like the other things that you bring into your life. Yeah. Well, and I, Allison from the Ask a Manager blog, which I, I highly recommend if you've got any, if you want to just dive through and read the read the backlogs on that blog, it's a really fabulous blog. But she says, you know, people spend a lot of time with this emphasis of this idea of dream job. But in reality, you never have any idea if a job is a dream job until you're in it. And, you know, like I've had so many jobs where I've read, I've read through all of the qualifications and what you're going to get a deal. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this job is amazing. Like this sounds perfect. How else can I combine my passion for like zines, libraries and hot sauce into one job, (laughs) but you don't really know until because people don't really usually leave jobs. They leave managers. Right. And you don't know what the dynamic is in a job until you're in it. You don't know if, Oh, maybe it was a perfect on paper for the first two weeks, but then your boss left and suddenly you were doing two people's jobs or, you know, there's a ton of things that you don't know and getting caught up with this idea of this job on paper and this dream job having to be everything to yourself, I think is a really dangerous place to get yourself in. Yeah, I agree completely. And I've experienced that as well. And I know other people who have and have, they've had the job that that's the pinnacle of their career. And it's everything that they've always wanted career wise. Yet, 
they feel the need to leave because, as you said, you know, uh, the people you work with can really take a dream job and make it a nightmare. Yeah. And that was one of the things that I found in, you know, accepting the job at the party and having to leave other jobs and resign committees because of conflict of interest. I discovered that because it was, you know, a crazy election year and because the job came with a lot of prestige, everybody immediately, like I could see in other people's faces how excited they were for me for the job and their perception of like the weight of it, right? Like I was working in an organization I loved full time plus a couple other jobs. And my boss tried to get me to stay when I got the job at the party. And everybody would immediately be like, oh, I can't believe you're leaving. And then they'd hear that I was moving to the party and they'd be like, oh, I, I see why you have to do that, of course. Mm. And I realized hindsight's twenty twenty, but I realized how little I can be fulfilled by chasing prestige and that prestige by itself, it can bring value. It can bring you credibility. It can help you achieve other things you want in your career, but prestige alone will not feed you. Oh, <laughs> <Right>? yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the hard things, right? I see a lot of people that like get really caught up in, especially like right when they're graduating and you know, they're the infinite universe of possibilities of jobs after graduation seems open to them. And they're applying for really prestigious fellowships. And if they don't get them, they feel crushed as though the the work itself was secondary to the name attached to it. I don't know what advice to give beyond recognizing how little that's going to matter to you <laughs> in a couple years, right? Like, I know so many like 24 year olds that get crushed when they don't get like the New York Times fellowship or something. And go on to do really excellent and amazing things um, and frankly forget about those 20 fellowship applications they put in in their, you know, the February of their senior year of college. You said something earlier about how people can think about their career as their definition of identity. And that can be that can be dangerous if you do that. What how do you identify yourself beyond the work that you do and the things that you think are important and how can you tie your career when you're just starting to who you believe you are and who you think and the important things that you think that you should be doing with your life. I'm still working on this. Like this is a continual piece of progress for me. And I think a lot of this for me comes from like the Midwestern work ethic, but I think it's a really important question to ask yourself is when people ask you, what are you, you need to realize that that isn't what do you do? <laughs> and mm -hmm. what do you do isn't just what do you get paid to do? I know a lot of folks get really caught up in the idea that their job title and their paid work is the only thing that they can, you know, lead with even at just networking events, right? Um, they get, you know, oh, I'm doing customer service at blah, 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 like some job they're not very passionate about, but they do really, they have super amazing side hustles. They've got, you know, a blog they're really passionate that they're working on. And they don't lead with that because they feel like that's not their real work because they're not getting paid or they're not getting paid appropriately for it. And just because you, you know, just because you're clocking in for someone else doesn't mean that it has to be the core part of your identity or the core part of your work. Your work doesn't necessarily mean your career too, right? It's the body of work that you're creating. Yeah, I like that idea that uh, you don't have to call your work. It doesn't have to be what you're getting paid for. And a lot of the time, the things that I think matter the most to us are sometimes the things that we don't get paid for. 
Right. Well, and also recognize that you are building career capital if you're working on those things. So like working on things that you're not getting paid for, I can't tell you, like, like I said, I had 40 jobs in my 20s. I got very few of those jobs by applying for them. Vast majority of them came through my network. And what do you think my network is from? Very little of it is from like my kind of full-time office jobs. Most of that network comes from my volunteering or the zines I make or the talks I give or the crazy bike ride I lead. And so recognizing that you're building career capital by creating work and creating things that benefit other people, even if that career capital isn't necessarily am certified in XYZ technology. (laughs) Also, I get people all the time that are like surprised that, you know, I know ArcGIS and also NoSQL and also do a bunch of data work because at no point has, you know, data analyst been on my resume, but I create these big complicated zines every year where I analyze all the data from the previous year of my life. And I learn those technologies as a matter of just creating that work. And it's Mm -hmm. just as valid to write that on your resume as you know, whatever you do in your day job, if the two things are different. One of the things that I know that I tell people to do when they come to me, especially younger people, younger adults who say, I haven't been able to find a job that I want. You know, having been a blogger for so many years, I say, well, you should establish yourself as an expert in whatever it is that you're looking to get your job in. Start a blog, start talking, Do all of these things to position yourself. Don't wait for a boss or a career or a job or someone else to give you these opportunities to make yourself known. Just go out there and do it because anybody can do it now. Definitely. Like, I didn't ask for anybody to give me permission to dress up in Bowie costumes and teach about personal finance. (laughs) I just started doing it, right? <laughs> like, and my, I had a podcast for five years that was on bikes and transit in Portland. And literally no one gave me permission to do that. But by, you know, by the end of running that, this was also very early in the days of podcasts, but we were at like 50K downloads an episode. And that was like a super niche topic, right? We were talking specifically about like bike policy in Portland. And, but that, I think in a large part led to me getting my next job and also led to a ton of speaking engagements and networking. And if you want to create, if you're annoyed that something else doesn't exist, like I was just very annoyed that there didn't seem to be good personal finance advice for weirdos like me, you could just make it and it'll come back around eventually. Sure. It's, it's trusting the process, which uh, we hear a lot about. So Lillian, what do you want to do next? What, what is your next dream that you're going to uh, try to accomplish? My big dream is to be full-time with Oh My Dollar. Um, so Oh My Dollar is about 60% of my income right now. And then other than that, I, I you know do some freelancing and dabble here and there. And that's my really big thing because it's awesome to do. I love doing it. I love talking to m- about money to people. I like being able to spend money on commissioning illustrators to draw me cats uh, doing 401k allocations. Like that is an excellent, awesome dream. But I'm also okay with the idea that like dreams can change. <laughs> right? Uh, I tend to be like a very elaborate forward planner, but I like to at least have like five different uh, alternate versions of what my life could be uh, in the next five years running at all times. What are some of those five versions? Oh, what are some of the five versions? I just wrapped up a big trip in September of this year. I went from Dublin, Ireland to Shanghai, China entirely by train. 
And this is part of my, and I recorded radio shows all the way. And I gave a talk on the economics of Harry Potter. And one of the big things I want to do now is produce a YouTube series that's on the macroeconomics of Harry Potter, because it was awesome to give a talk on that. And it just is a treasure trove for interesting discussions. <laughs> okay, well, that, let's, but, let's go yeah, there. Let's, we need to go there. It has to be done. <laughs> You want to talk about the macroeconomics of Harry Potter? Because I could talk about this all day, but I worry we might derail this podcast episode. (laughs) No, no, that's okay. How about just like, I I mean, I'm not a big Harry. I don't know a lot of the Harry Potter universe. I I know Harry Potter. I know that there there were Weasleys and Hermione, and I know that there was a Dumbledore. That is, uh, that is my knowledge of Harry Potter, but I would like to know what did Harry Potter, the, 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 the work, have to say about macroeconomics? Well, a lot of this just ends up being admitting that J.K. Rowling doesn't really understand economics, and that's part of why the books are <laughs> like so logic- illogically <laughs> flawed. But one of the most frustrating things to me is that a wand only costs seven galleons, and seven galleons is actually less than the cost of some of the ingredients in the wand on the open market. So the and there's only three people in the world that make the wands. You only need to buy one in your life and you need a wand to do everything you do in the magical world. So they're an incredibly valuable commodity as well as being like relatively rare, hard to produce. Um, why are they only seven galleons? Shouldn't it be the most expensive thing you buy? Like you can actually spend more money on candy for your friends than you do on the one wand you buy in your life. It makes no sense unless there are government subsidies. I was going to say it would have to be (laughs) subsidies then because, you know, a wand is something that is necessary for every citizen in this world and should be therefore subsidized by the government so that everybody is on equal ground. If every wizard couldn't afford to buy a wand, then they wouldn't be able to be wizards, (laughs) even though they had magic. (laughs) Well, that's true. But I mean, in the in the later books, we see, of course, the essentially the evil wizards controlling supply of wands in order to enforce racist and hierarchical society. So, I mean, yes, we there's a clear acknowledgement of that. But like, we see very little evidence in the Harry Potter macroeconomics that they actually have a command economy in which they could have subsidies like that. Mm. Also, like, why does he then have a storefront in the most popular, like the guy who makes the wands in London. Why does he have a storefront in like the most popular alley in London? Like, I mean, I I don't really understand what he gains from that if he's in a non-competitive market. Right, he could be anywhere or not even have a storefront. Right, right, totally. You can't go shopping for it. It's to make things easier for people to go shopping. But you go you get your wand, you get your, I know, but, but you buy it when you're a kid going to school. So, well, your parents buy it for you. So you go, <laughs> so you go and you buy your wand and your books and your potion ingredients and they all cost more than your wand. I, I mean, and it doesn't, but it doesn't make a lot of economic sense as a business owner, right? No. <laughs> so Gringotts, the bank is actually not a bank. It's a private security firm. Right, They do no interest lending, and it appears to have a 100% reserve requirement despite being the central bank for the government, which is crazy. So based on everything we can kind of extract, it looks like the wizarding economy has actually been in a recession for about 40 years by the time the books start. 
Or it's just artificially kept, you know, <laughs> kept afloat, apparently. Well, well, that's one of the things that we really don't understand is, um, I mean, there's, so, yeah, anyway, I could I could really keep going with this. Uh, I have a feeling Rowling is not an economist. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's just my hot take right now. <laughs> yes, J.K. Rowling has firmly admitted that she is not an economist and, but it's still fun to debate. I also think that one of the value in it is I love taking fictional universes and seeing how the economics apply to them as a way of teaching economics. Just because if you fully understand Harry Potter and then, and you don't understand macroeconomics at all, hopefully we can backwards engineer to you understanding how it actually works in, you know, a non-fictional economy. Well, it wouldn't. <laughs> oh, but I love trying to I come love up Harry with- Potter. I love I love Harry Potter. Let's don't get me wrong. I love Harry Potter. I love economic discussions. But <laughs> just yeah. Well, it was funny because I actually had somebody who was creating. They were putting together. They wanted to put together like a long running serial involving alien alien interactions and alien societies um, and humans like you know, interacting with them and they were stuck. They were trying to figure out how to run an economic system for this class of aliens that never did anything, but had, but had servants and everything. And I'm like, you can't, you, you like, <laughs> like they don't do anything. They don't work. <laughs> I'm like, you need to completely restructure their society in order to make this, this happen. Like they, they don't work. They don't do anything. They don't, Basically, you've got like this weird enforced communism that I have no idea how to even describe at this point. <laughs> it's just like you have to, if you, want, if you want a viable economic system for this alien race, you have to completely redo their society. This is not going to work. I appreciate that you have thought this through. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh. Anyway, dream jobs. <laughs> my dream Let's talk job. About your dream, dream job is to ex- explain. Economist, pretty much. <laughs> that's right. uh, I mean, I think it would be excellent to be a wizard economist. So that's one of my. I, so one of the things that I do when I'm I'm kind of sussing out job opportunities, new job opportunities, is I make a list of the qualities that I want in a job and what I fear about what I fear would change in my life that I wouldn't want to change. And I actually use that as a comparison. So, you know, when I got the job at the Democratic Party, I actually made a a list of things that I was afraid would be hurt by the job, um, one of which was having to quit all my other all my other gigs, but also like certain things about uh, work-life balance. I don't have a lot of work-life balance, but I have like a semblance of like, I like to eat dinner at my house at least like half the nights of the week and got like a hundred days into the job. And I looked at the list and a hundred percent of my fears had come true. (laughs) And none of the things that I had kind of hoped for versus some, some other positions I'd had where I kind of wrote my fantasy list of, okay, I'm looking forward 18 months in the future what are the things I want to be able to say that I have accomplished in this job? You know, not only do I want to kind of check off the regular whatever's in my job description, but like I want to say that I threw our most successful end of year fundraiser and I got XYZ local celebrities to attend. I want to be able to say that we ran a campaign that, you know, broke all of these things and essentially write my future dream resume. 18 months to two years in the future so that I can backwards engineer what that looks like. Because quite often, like a dream job has very little to do with what you got hired for, but has to do with what you accomplished on the job. 
Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's one of the things, I mean, you were talking about like what millennials want a lot of, a lot of, I mean, myself included, like we want to see some sort of meaning in what we're doing uh, with the job. What are we accomplishing? What sort of meaning do we have? And that helps a lot. And I kind of also was looking at what you're saying about like work-life balance. And sometimes it's hard to in, uh, think of it in terms of work-life and trying to balance those things, but think of it more in terms of flow. What does my life flow look like? And then where does work fit into that? Yeah, I I definitely, like, I'm terrible at this concept of work-life balance, but I also am not necessarily of the belief that work-life balance is a state that you need to achieve on a daily, weekly, or even annual basis, but that, like, work-life balance is something over the course of your career, like you're saying, like, I think it ebbs and flows, especially if you're someone that plans on taking time off to raise kids. I think it's important to understand that if you if you can have more work now to have more not work later, um, that work-life balance can kind of be seen over the course of a career and not just over the course of like an immediate daily eight hours of work, eight hours of what we will. Yeah. Right. I think there's a so there's a lot of expectation among people who are looking for perhaps their first job out of college that they're going to have all the benefits that they they deserve that they're going to be able to take time off whenever they want and still do great things in their job and I know that that was never my experience you had to put in a lot of hours and a lot of effort and the the idea of work like life balance was was kind of crazy if you wanted it to actually accomplish um good things in in your in 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 the career portion of your life. So I think that balance is something that we have to think about and whether it's something that's even achievable or it's something that we want to even have as a goal. It's become such a catchphrase that people just believe that it's part of the expectation for their career. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of industry norms as well that it really varies and I think people kind of underestimate the impact of what the industry norms are on what it looks like, what the hours look like. Like, obviously, if you are a brand new lawyer working in a financial or a white shoe law firm in New York, they consider work-life balance only billing like 100 hours a week, right? So Mm -hmm. it's, which is very different than like, working in a nonprofit in a family oriented nonprofit in the Midwest, you know, a week of overtime might look like 45 hours, right? And that isn't to paint either one of those industries as a broad stroke, but I I think people underestimate how much industry norms come into play. But I also think that there's a difference between working hard and doing hard work and beating yourself up to the point where you're no longer an effective employee. And recognizing that taking time to actually take care of yourself as a being and recognize that you are not just a vessel to produce more profit for your employer. You need to be aware that you do better work if you treat yourself as a human. I've been in a lot of industries where there is a lot of kind of like a race to the bottom for like, I've eaten nothing but hummus and pizza for the past three weeks and I've slept under my desk five nights a week. Like that, it doesn't, you don't gain anything. In terms of the work by doing that, all you're doing is winning a game that I think, frankly, is a really poor game to be playing. <laughs> yeah, sure. I definitely see a lot of people playing that game, even even in the nonprofit world. Oh, all the time. 
one of the advantages of having multiple jobs, which I'm not necessarily recommending this as a lifestyle choice, that it seems to have become clear that this is a path I have chosen for myself, whether or not I like it. But part of having a bunch of jobs and having almost none of my jobs have the money to hire me full time meant that it was sort of like, you know, dating multiple people, but none of them wanted to date you exclusively. So they had to admit that it was okay that you were dating other people. (laughs) There's a a point at which like, if you can only hire me for 11 hours a week, you're gonna need to understand that I am going to have to take time off for other work. And you know, that work may be taking a day off entirely. (laughs) But like, you need to recognize that if you can't pay me like a reasonable salary and provide me with benefits, which is very common in the nonprofit world, then you're going to have to recognize that, like, as an employer, you are not meeting all of my needs. So I can't meet all of yours necessarily. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And I, uh, I, I, that's basically something that I live the way I work and the way I live is very similar to that in that, you know, I volunteer a lot of my time right now for a nonprofit. I have to draw the line somewhere because I'm in a role where I'm needed or I could be called upon at almost any time of the day or, or night, whether it's just just to answer questions or or deal with issues or or solve problems or put out fires whatever it happens to be but i have to draw the line somewhere and and give time to the other projects that need my attention so it's definitely something that i am familiar with yeah i've also had some projects where like i part of the risk of kind of dream jobs or dream projects is that i've had a lot of opportunities to work on stuff that's like wildly unique and my baby, right? Like I, I love these projects. Like one of the big projects I worked on was I spent seven years as a zine librarian for a local nonprofit is second largest collection of zines in the world dating back to the 1930s, like over 50k zines, a lot of which we have the only copy left of like Tijuana Bibles, just really amazing, unique self published material. I helped create this like 24 hour, (laughs) speaking of work-life balance, we would have people come in from uh, like even other countries to stay up for 24 hours straight cataloging zines for our library in this big crazy competition we called Raiders of the Lost Archives. Oh, that's awesome. Um, And we built like a, which was, which was a, it was fantastically cool and fun. And I can't believe that people did that. Also, I look back now and go, of course, someone in their mid 20s thought of staying up for 24 hours straight as a fundraising activity. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do that now. Uh, (laughs) But I, we built this really amazing database. And I loved and I cared for it a ton. But I got to the point where I was like, you know, I'm I need to ease out of this. I've, I've been in this role for a long time. I'm sick of the fact that I have to find funding in order, I spend a lot of my time fundraising just to be able to do the work, to pay myself to do the work. And I prepared a huge transition document. I think it was like 70 pages, documented the software that we built for this. And um, over the years, the organization lost the, because they didn't pay anybody, they lost the institutional knowledge, despite my document for this database. And I had to reach the point where I go, like, I'm proud of what I did and I love you and I care a lot about this collection, but there, there's a point at which I can't keep being the person that you call in the middle of the night. Like (laughs) I haven't, I haven't worked there for three years and you're not showing me as an organization 
that you're invested in keeping this up. You're just showing me that you are in like a codependent relationship with me. <laughs> so I, like if oh you can't God. find someone else to support this project, like I'm proud of it, but I have to let it go. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've reached that point with a lot of like volunteer or otherwise projects where you have to realize that you have to wash your hands of it. And sometimes it's harder to do with volunteer things than it is to do with old jobs. <laughs> Yeah, no, I um I was in a similar situation and the good news is well, I mean at the time I, you know, held on for a while and would accept those calls and it would help them figure things out even though they should have the knowledge in order to do this without my assistance. You know, being a little bit older now, I I look at the situation I'm in and I think I wouldn't have as much of an issue uh, walking away if I had to walk away. Of course, I don't want to walk away and I love the things that I'm doing right now. But, you know, thinking down the road many years, yeah, I will have other things going on in my life and I will be able to make that cut. Uh, when I need to. So I I think it's something that we all kind of have to think about at some point, especially when we give so much of ourselves to things that are things that we're passionate about. Right. And, you know, so in the Peace Corps, one of the big things that they do is they try to encourage you to like organize a community event and then actually be gone for the day Mm. that the event happens on. And that's because they're really trying to build in this concept of sustainability and projects Mm -hmm. that outlast the individual volunteers. And I think there's a lot of value to treating projects you do in your career, either in your paid work or outside of it with that kind of ethos of realizing that like, it's unlikely you're going to do this forever. Even in your regular full-time job, you are best serving the people you work for, the organization, the project you're building, if you set it up so that it can succeed without you. And of course, you can't control what what they choose to do once you leave. And like recognizing that as a level of self-actualization I am still working on. (laughs) Um, But if you can build the systems and the projects to not have yourself be an indispensable part of it, you've actually built a better project. That's uh, that's exactly where I am right now with a lot of the projects that I do, and uh, having having sold a business too, I've I've been through the whole. I've I've had this, you know, I have this baby, well, this project, which you know I consider a baby in some ways, and I sold this. Okay, I'll stop using the word baby now because now <laughs> I sold this business, and over the course of the years following that, I had to let go of whatever feelings were attached to, you know, the the 10 years I spent building that business. And that's and that's hard to do, but you're so much better for it once you're able to let go and realize that it is now its own creature, someone else is dealing with it. And and I am, you know, I have the freedom to start other things and work on other things, but just letting go is going to be such an important piece of that. And that comes from, you know, you'll be able to do that a lot easier once you, like you said, set things up so that you can easily let go when it's time to do that and things can survive without you. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that like Hollywood actors and actresses are what we should be looking at as a, uh, you know, career model but i think there's a lot to be said for like thinking about your career and your resume and your your continual pursuit of the complicated concept of a dream career as like an imdb page 
right? Which is that like you went and you contributed to this thing and you kicked butt at it when you did, but recognizing that like your career is a collection of all of these things mm -hmm. and it's not just working towards, it's not getting something and then holding on to it forever. Absolutely. So why don't you tell us exactly where our audience can find your David Bowie financial advice and everything else that you do? Really, if you just Google Oh My Dollar uh, and go to ohmydollar.com, you can find almost everything. We have a radio show that's syndicated in quite a lot of cities, so you can check our website and see if it's on a local radio station. Or you can just check us out on iTunes, uh, the Oh My Dollar podcast. We come out every Monday. And if you're looking for cats to explain personal finance to you, <laughs> you can go to ohmydollar.com slash Kickstarter. Great. And thank you so much. And if you're interested in more adulting content, head to adulting.tv where you can find resources, articles, videos, and our own podcast, which is released every Thursday and occasionally on Saturday when we have awesome guests like Lillian to join us. Don't forget to join the Facebook community, the Facebook community, hashtag adulting. And remember to send us your questions at adulting.tv slash ask. And until next time, remember to behave like a grown-up. Thank you for listening to Adulting. Find resources for this episode or download other episodes at adulting.tv. Adulting.tv